You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, thank you for joining us. You always appreciate it. want to remind you guys about all of our social media sites and the ways to follow the Hazard Ground. We are on Facebook at Hazard Ground Podcast, also on Instagram at the same Hazard Ground Podcast, and on Twitter at Hazard Ground. That's the way to keep up with everything we got going on on the podcast. Also, leave us a rating and a review on iTunes if you would please. Certainly helps us out and lets us know what you guys love and don't like about the show. All right, part two of Nate Self's story, the Battle of Takargar up on the mountains in Afghanistan continues in this week's episode. Last we left off, Nate and his team of rangers were on the mountaintop fighting for their lives as they got out of their helicopter and were immediately ambushed. And they had another 10 hours up on that mountain waiting to be exfilled out and waiting for that lifeline that would so desperately get the wounded and injured comrades off that mountaintop as they were stranded there. So here is part two of Nate Self's story and the Battle of Tacker Gar. So I would assume that, you know, getting a medevac there was out of the question, like they weren't going to give you another bird, given how hot it was and the fact that one had already been shot down. So you're stuck there on this mountaintop in a fight. Uh, your, your other rangers finally make it up there. What's kind of going on for the next, oh, I don't know, 10 hours or so? So while I was... While I was waiting on the other rangers to come to me, because of the time, the time distance, kind of time space analysis that we were doing of, hey, we've got 45 minutes and we'll be there. You think, okay, in 45 minutes we'll have the force we need to move and, uh, and take this mountaintop. But when you find out they're not there in 45 minutes, number one, you start to think, should I be doing other things instead of waiting on them? And number two, you start thinking, should I trust their next time hack? And we started taking mortar fire from another mountainside, uh, from another mountain, which was to our east. And so the mortar fire is, uh, is different than the direct fire enemy fight. It's a different kind of psychological effect when mortar rounds are coming in. You don't know where they're going to land. It's kind of in the open. They're hitting from above, from coming down from the sky. And so that causes us to start to feel like we really need to move. Um, so we Moves caches inside the aircraft to, to keep, protect them from mortars. Um, and we thought, before we get this next group of rangers up here, we got to try to take this mountain now because we're just in the open. And so four of us got up and started to assault the mountain. Got about halfway up there, and I called the retreat of the assault because I saw the enemy positions, what they consisted of. How, how dug in they were and it was really just a result of my training and just an instinct of we can't take this now it's something that i still second guess um but it's possible catastrophic outcome would have been we tried to take it we didn't take it now there's only a couple of guys defending the crash site so we moved back down it's not in our nature it's not any way that we train to move back away from the enemy at all um but it's just something i decided to do and so in order to try to uh, get another push, uh, we used a Predator unmanned aerial vehicle to fire a couple of Hellfire missiles into the bunker that was close to us. And when we did that, the bunker that we had been trying to take was silenced by the remote control drone. And, uh, and then we got another time hack and we felt like, okay, we're not getting any more fire. The mortar fire has actually shifted to the guys trying to get to us. So let's just wait 
And when the second group got to us, uh, I felt like we had enough push with the, with 10 more Rangers, um, essentially increased our force um, from five to 15 or so. And uh, we, we assaulted the mountaintop and took it and uh, killed whoever else left up there. Um, and that was 11, somewhere 11, 11, 15 in the morning. We were able to get that done. At what point in time do you end up finding Neil Roberts and, and how does that whole thing come about? So one of the squad leaders that was in the second chomp that got to me that I pushed into the assault, he came upon Neil's body uh, during the assault. So we had not oh, okay. finished clearing it, but he was in the lead bunker right there. Like, so if I would not have retreated, I would have walked into him in about 10 more steps. And so he called me and said, Hey, you need to get up here. Um, I think we have a, I think we have a casualty up here. And I thought one of our guys was shot in the assault. And, um, that had not happened to one of my guys. What he had found was Neil's, um, Neil Roberts. He had found him and he wanted me to come and try to identify who it was. Um, he didn't understand. Obviously it wasn't in our assault. We hadn't pieced it all together yet. We were not in good communications with the SEAL team. It was only a couple of hundred meters from us, but their, their radio batteries were kind of on the out. They had to conserve and kind of hold what they had until they were reinforced. And they were uh, just told us, hey, we're off your flank. Don't shoot in this direction. And uh, we'll check in with you in an hour or so, something like that. Did did it register with you? Did you make the connection that when you heard earlier that you had a guy missing or a guy was left behind, that that was him? It didn't register at that point when I got up there and saw him and realized that he was right in the enemy positions. I thought he was maybe an advisor to friendly Afghan forces that had held that position and that they had turned on him and killed him. Or I thought that there was something really nefarious going on that had pulled us in there and possibly they had that was were holding in there to call us in. You know, I, I didn't understand why he would be there. I didn't know who he was when I first, we first found him. Was that and because then, of the condition you found him in? What do you mean, not know who he was? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, when you thought something nefarious was going on or that he was killed by his Afghan comrades, his Afghan proxies, what, what, what led you to that sort of that, that thought um, process? Just because he was in such proximity to the enemy positions and the guys, the enemy that we had just killed. And even a part of me thought maybe we killed him um, because we were shooting into that area uh, and dropping ordnance from the aircraft into that area for hours. And so I felt a little bit of, I hope we didn't do this. Um, but I also didn't really understand any of it. I mean, because we were finding friendly gear on the enemy that we had killed down around the helicopter. Um, some of his gear even had been pilfered and passed around his night vision goggles, his radio, all that kind of stuff. And so it almost seemed as if there was something really bad going on there that had pulled us in there. And until we were actually able to find his identification on him and find out who it was and then call down to the SEAL team and they told us, yeah, he's from our team, including John Chapman. He's from our team. Then it all came together for me. And I knew that he was the one we were looking for. 
Gotcha. And so John Chapman was another SEAL there, and he was killed in battle, or do, what, what did you know about him? Yeah, John wasn't a SEAL. John was attached to the SEAL team. Okay. He was an Air Force Air Force combat controller, but he had habitually worked with them for a while, and he had been with them on all deployment, in and out, probably with different teams, but he was in with them on that mission specifically. And he was in the first group in, and when they lost Neil the first time, he went in with the second lift. So he was a he was a member of the original team that went in and went in to try to rescue him. And when they assaulted into the enemy positions on their second landing, he was left behind. Gotcha. When they came when they came off the mountaintop. And uh, since that happened, there's been. Uh, significant mixed opinions as to whether he was actually alive or not when they left. Um, the SEAL team leader believed that he was already dead when they came off the mountain. Um, they, they, they extracted themselves from the mountaintop under extreme duress, and uh, he couldn't get to him to check to see if he was alive or not. He believed he was dead. Um, but there are some that believe that he was not, and that he um, fought by himself also for some time. It, not related to what you went through, but how does that make you feel when there is some conjecture as to what actually happened to an American service member and stuff like that? Um, just like anything, we talk about fog on the battlefield. And obviously, I've been very open about the kinds of things that I was confused about going in, confused about when we first got on the ground, confused about when I found their bodies. Um, you know, your mind fills in the blanks. And the same thing was happening in our operations centers back in Bogham, in Kandahar, at Fort Bragg, at McDill Air Force Base, all the different places in Oman where we had command and control nodes, when they're watching this thing go down, literally watching it from surveillance live, a live feed, they're also not sure what's going on. And so even before I got on the ground, they had mistaken an enemy fighter who was assaulting Neil Roberts for Neil Roberts. And when we first got back to the operations center, they had believed that Neil Roberts had fought all over that mountain for a period of a couple of hours all by himself. And it wasn't until you kind of deconstruct where the enemy was and you watch the tape continuously you can see who was what and where they were that they recognized that wasn't um that wasn't true and i think the same thing has happened with, with john chapman certain people believe that certain things happened the SEAL team leader that was on the ground has asserted the same thing since he was on the ground and had a very i think tight description as to what happened and the way it matches up with the tape um, regarding what he saw and his actions, very detailed and very, very aligned with the tape. Um, but there are a few times where the camera's not on the mountain and it's orbiting and there's things you can or can't see and it's a thermal image. And, and so there are people that believe that that John wasn't wasn't uh, dead at the time and that he was still there fighting. The way it makes me feel is I... I feel like it's very difficult for us to make any kind of assessment. We don't know for sure. Um, I think 
is very dangerous territory to do that. Um, and I and the guys in my team were the ones that were on the ground for the longest amount of time that knew the terrain and knew where the bodies were and knew where everyone had operated. And I, after seeing all the evidence and all the arguments on both sides, I'm still couldn't say that I'm one direction or the other more than 50%. Well, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to ask you, because, you know, you more than anybody along with your men had the best lay of the land and could probably piece together you know, given, uh, as you talked about, when you walk on the battlefield, you know, you can almost envision the 360 degrees around you and how things go. And, and uh, that was just, I was just curious on how you felt on those two particular individuals, given that they were in the same spot that you were. So you get to the top of the mountain and you're there, but you don't get out of there for another couple of hours. So what's going on? As soon as we took the mountain, I thought immediately uh, we could get these wounded out of here. Um, you know, the reason why we were pinned down is because we came into a landing zone ambush and we were at a, at a really disadvantaged position with the terrain. But after killing all the enemy there and holding the key terrain now, um, I really felt like now's time. Now, now is the time for medevac. And we started to move our casualties from the helicopter up into the safer positions where the enemy bunkers were and, and on the western slope of the mountain, which was opposite of where the mortar fire was coming from, opposite the direction of where we thought more threat was because to the west you had friendly forces down in the valley which you can see they're fighting the conventional fight in the Anaconda. And so I thought if we can get them moved to a safe location, we could get an aircraft in here on the western slope and, uh, and get a few guys out. And um, so we started moving guys. Uh, as, as things tend to go, I think, on the battlefield, there's just periods of very intense fighting, and then there's lulls, and the lulls, because it's not completely uh, over-the-top intense, you tend to let down your guard a bit and think it's safer than it is. And when we were moving casualties, so we had a lot of guys out in the open. Um, there were a few enemy fighters that had moved in behind us um, and below us, and they launched a, what I would call a counterattack, even though it wasn't the same group of guys. And they initiated their fires directly into our casualty collection point. And uh, so we had all these guys laid out in the open, and they um, started hitting them. And, and, and what that began was a, a few hours of fighting an enemy counterattack while moving casualties under fire in the open man <laughs> it's just it, when it rains it pours at this point are you thinking like what the hell else can happen next i don't know i think you i think i think in the military they train you to to be anticipating what could happen next and so i don't want to say we weren't i mean we obviously weren't prepared for it because of the way we were arrayed, but the way we were arrayed was was essentially because we were trying to mass our force on where the enemy was. And so we were kind of in transition from massing on the mountaintop to moving to the mountaintop. So they caught us in a transitionary period where a lot of the guys that would have been a couple of minutes later, assuming security that direction, we were just wide open. And 
I don't want to say it surprised us that it happened because we knew there was a threat back there because of the mortar fire and some of the sniper fire we were getting, but we also weren't ready for it, uh, the way we were arrayed. Um, so you just turn around and start fighting it. And what we did is we pushed some guys directly down the mountain uh, on the other side of the helicopter. So we've got guys at the top of the mountain that are shooting almost over the helicopter and over our soft kind of center. And the guys below the helicopter that are firing um, at the enemy. And, and in the middle, we're moving guys. Uh, but the angle of fires the enemy had was grazing up the mountain because they were below us. So everything they were shooting um, was affecting the whole slope. So they had a good position and we turned the air force back on and we started dropping pretty heavy bombs on them. Yeah. That's, that's uncommon because usually the higher ground has the bigger advantage, but it seems, was it just that you were doing something else that caught you in a bad position with the enemy fire coming from below? Well, say the position we had um, in the higher ground was definitely an advantage because we're, we're firing down the same angle. And so our, all our fires are actually, everything we shoot is affecting them too because it's, it's it's hugging the ground all the way down the slope. Right. But their stuff's hugging the ground all the way up the slope. And before, um, you know, when we were firing up the slope, they were kind of in positions and on the crest. So everything we were firing at them was going over. And when they, let's say they had been at the same altitude as us, if they were firing straight across to the same altitude, everything they shot would have hit that zone and would have stopped. And so it was actually to their advantage to be below us because everything they shot affected everyone. It's a grazing, grazing fire versus plunging fire, kind of our terms. So okay. the fire is extended. So ultimately, when does that fighting end and how do you get out of there? Well, that fighting went on for several hours. Um, once we got some bombs on them, they kind of went to ground, but every time the jets went off station, they came back up. Then the mortar fire continued, but just the task of moving guys that distance at that altitude in the snow and guys are already spent from fighting and from climbing up the mountain. It was difficult, um, to, to do that. And, uh, so we started calling for a medevac early on. I think people were entertaining that, that plan. And we're talking about getting us a reinforcement pretty early in the day. I think as they started to process back at headquarters, process what had happened, we had three helicopters that had been in that landing zone and two of them were completely disabled. One of them was in the valley floor. One of them was mine sitting right in front of us. Neither one of those were going to move. And I think at this point, we might have had 14 or 16 of these aircraft in their whole inventory. And, and it probably took 12 to 18 months to build a new one. And so, I mean, you've got operations across the world for special ops using these helicopters, and we've just lost, potentially just lost three of them in a matter of hours. And so you start thinking, we're going to hamper our ability to do operations for the next 18 months with this force if we try to push another bird in there. So those are the kinds of things they're thinking about. And they also don't know that the landing zone is secure because every time we tell them, hey, we took the mountain, then we're calling in. JDAMs and and we're back in contact and we can't reply for five minutes, you know, so it's they're confused as to how safe it really is, so they make a decision at higher headquarters that they're not going to push anything in there until after, after the sun goes down, and so we're kind of just like right after noon and uh, they 
say, hey, you know, in, in, in another 30 or 45 minutes, we're going to brief the exfil plan. So I'm thinking, okay, well, I got to wait for that. And then they come on the radio and say, hey, we're going to we're going to brief everybody at once. And they pushed it out another two hours. Oh, God. So I'm thinking, I'm thinking, <laughs> well, I'm not even going to get the plan for two hours. This isn't happening anytime soon. And so I got the, it was either right before I got the plan or right after I got it, uh, which was, I think, at least a 45 minute brief on the radio. And I had to back brief the whole thing to prove that I Understood got it all. It, yeah. Yeah. And, and so that was uh, an academic exercise to say the least. And I remember my senior medic on the ground coming to me and saying, Hey, we've got two guys that like, we've got, I'm sorry, we've got three guys here on the ground right now that are wounded. If they don't get to surgery the next couple of hours, they're not going to make it. And so I had this decision point of how hard do I push? Obviously I want to push as hard as I can, but do I lie? Do I lie about the situation on the ground? Do I say whatever I need to say to get these guys out of here? thereby potentially compromising another whatever they would send in there. And I really struggled to continue to push, uh, got on the radio, tried to talk to someone higher on the radio. Eventually someone really high up on the radio came back up to me and I recognized the voice on the radio and essentially said, you know, we understand the gravity of the situation. The timeline's going to, uh, the exfiltration is going to happen on the timeline, which was, uh, the no that I got that you're not getting an aircraft in there before that. So the exfiltration was supposed to happen at like 8 p.m. So we did our best to consolidate what we had, keep guys alive. Um, and unfortunately, one of the three we thought might, we might lose, we did lose them. Jason Cunningham, one of the PJs, who was wounded in the counterattack while he was working on casualties. Um, out on the mountain. Yeah. I don't know how you process it. Like, like you just went through an incredible detail that uh, we haven't really heard before from anybody else. You know, yeah, you want to get the guys out of there and you want to get yourself out of there. And those are all, I think, natural, normal feelings. But as you just said, you know, you could be putting other people at risk. And I wouldn't want that on my, you know, my conscience. If I, I lied about the condition, they brought a chopper in and it gets shot down. Now, now you have to feel like, hey, if I didn't really push for this, you know, other people might be okay. But then you get told no. I know relief is not the right word. I know you didn't feel relief. But when you look back on it, the fact that somebody at that level said no, does it change how you reconcile the events? Um, not necessarily. Uh, I understand what you mean. Um, because sometimes, and I think this happens a lot in the military and in business, that people want to delegate up and they don't want to make a decision. So they're asking someone to make it for them. I knew at that point that I could probably manipulate the decision into whatever I wanted, but I also had a healthy respect that I didn't have the full picture and that nothing we had done on the ground so far was really going that well. And so our credibility, anyone that was hitting that mountaintop, their credibility was, was likely in question because how badly things had gone. Um, and so I trusted our leadership. I knew the voice on the radio on the other end. He'd been a ranger before. Uh, in combat, he had led, um, even was directly in command of my battalion commander at the time, way back in Grenada. And so we knew our heritage and I knew his voice. And I knew when he told me, I understand your situation, that he did. And I knew that if he was telling me no, that uh, I knew that 
probably in his heart and in his mind, he wanted nothing more than to give us what we were asking for. And if he wasn't doing it, it was just like me telling guys no on the mountain for whatever. And uh, it didn't necessarily make it easier because I knew that it, I could probably, I could probably affect it, but it gave me the nudge to know that I wasn't going to be able to change their minds um, at that point moving forward. And I didn't have the full picture, but I trusted that, that, um, that it was the right decision. You say it so eloquently, like it, it makes me feel better about the whole thing, you know, because we can go through numerous battles and numerous events. And we've even done it on this podcast where there's reason to question why decisions were made and, and, and the logic behind it and the reasoning behind it and who made it and all the circumstances around it. But when you say it that way, that connection that you had that you have brought to life, I think is so critical. I mean, not only trust, but just the I know this decision not only has the best interest of those three wounded individuals at heart, but my best interest at heart and, and everybody's best interest at heart. And that is, I, 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 to me, it's comforting. I mean, I can just feel it and hear it in your voice. I, I don't know if that's the right word for you, but it's, it's, it's reassuring. Yeah. I don't know that I would use that word. Um, it's, uh, it at least backs me off from strong degrees of guilt that I would feel or they would feel to know that, you know, there's a lot of decisions you make in a combat um, situation that you'll never know the outcome because you can't play out two courses of action or more. You can't, can't see how you can't experiment with it and see how it would have played out either way. So there's a lot of second guessing. There's a lot of what ifs. And I do that still in some of the decisions I made. Um, like should I have pushed harder earlier? Um, should I have assaulted and not called off that assault? Should we have moved? down off the mountain you know those kinds of things um but i feel like i have a, a degree of peace about it um uh, there's still some uneasiness of it but i can live with it and, and i did ask that knowing what you went through as far as ptsd is concerned and i, I do want to get to that and talk a little bit about that but first tell me how you ultimately end up getting off the mountain so the plan was to bring a few Chinooks in after the sun went down. Um, first of all, they were going to make sure that there was plenty of air support and surveillance kind of checking to make sure there was no one nearby us. And if they were, if anything moved, they would be not moving real soon. And so we had a couple of gunships and we had a lot of casts stacked up. We had two or three Chinooks coming in fully loaded with seals that were going to come in and land on the mountain secure the mountain with us, help us move casualties, get on, get them on the aircraft and get them out of there. And so it was a pretty detailed plan. I think three Chinooks came in, one went to the SEAL team that was on its own, the original SEAL team, one went that direction and the other two came in and landed where we were. And then we had the task of, uh, of moving our dead and our wounded onto the aircraft and then just getting ourselves off of there. And, and I would say that just like most operations that are planned, and resourced and at night uh, went off pretty well. What's the feeling you have when you finally sit down in that helicopter and it lifts off and it moves away? Um, there's definitely a feeling that you can lower your level of vigilance, if you will. 
Um, you're in someone else's hands that you don't need to be looking down the barrel. Um, you're just sitting there with your guys, but I'm on board the aircraft with our dead. And so there was nothing about that flight that was good. Um, it was the day is basically over for us, but um, this event has just started. Interesting way you put that. Um, when you say it's just started, what about it was just beginning? Well, you know, the guys that, that when you left your tents the, the evening before, you know, you're bringing back guys that aren't breathing anymore and, and they're gone. They're gone forever. And, and we have a lot of wounded. And so what our unit was 24 hours prior, um, even physically, uh, we were not, we we're not able to, to operate. Um, we had a, essentially a whole squad that had to be reconstituted because of wounds and, and uh, killed in action. Um, it's quite a shock. Um, it's hard to process, just like anything in life is hard to process when you first feel your world change. Um, but then you have to move through the duties that you have. I mean, you have to be combat ready as quickly as possible. It's not as if you come off of one firefight and they're going to say, we're retiring all of you and thank you for what you've done. And you can just go about your business now. No one wants that. You got to, as we say, get back in the saddle. And so within hours, we were all ready eager to get back into the next gunfight. Um, but the duties you have to perform are, you know, you have wounded that need to be processed and maybe you won't see for months. You have fallen brothers that are going to need to be escorted back to the States. You have families that you need to notify. You have families you need to interact with, um, that you want to interact with. You have awards to write, um, to accurately and honorably capture what men did, um, particularly those that were going to be buried soon. And, uh, and you've got to deal with just the traumatic event and how you keep guys in the short term doing their jobs and the long term healing from what happened. So there's a lot, a lot going on there. Absolutely. Um, your book, Two Wars, uh, you, you talks about the, the second battle that waged on in your life. Obviously, your your struggle with PTSD. And, you know, uh, with you having to keep your guard up, because as you said, the fight wasn't over. You were still in Afghanistan. And even after that, you, you took another deployment to Iraq after the fact. In the big yeah. picture, when you look back, do you had wish did, did the second deployment to Iraq help you more or hurt you more? Um, I don't know that I've thought about it. I don't know that I've thought about that question. And now that you pose it, I'm not sure. Um, I know what I wanted to do and what I wanted to do was be deployed again, because that was a new, that was my new world was war fighting. I mean, once I had been, you know, post nine 11, that was our mindset. And then post Tucker Gar, 
that was my professional mindset was I've now been given a very expensive gift as a leader in our army was paid for with a lot of blood and it's my duty um, and my desire to get what I can out of that. And so I need to be over there. So I wanted to go to Iraq as soon as I could. Um, the deployment and my duties there were different than they were in Afghanistan. I wasn't directly leading troops. I was at a much higher level on a staff and I was out in sector quite a bit and um, doing things and really, I think, probably contributing the ways that I could, but it was a different uh, kind of distant isolation from being with the boys. And that definitely had an effect on me, knowing there were casualties, helping to process certain operations and plan certain operations and not being out there with them, and then having to deal with knowing guys were wounded and killed in those operations. I felt really guilty, even though it wasn't really my call whether I was going to be out there with them. I just still felt that. And, um, and then I actually did start to get afraid. I was afraid more for my family's future that I was playing a high stakes game uh, of, of roulette with my family. If I was going to continue to deploy indefinitely and put myself with units that I wanted to be with, um, that one of these times I wouldn't come home. And so that's ultimately what drove me to want to leave the army was wanting to be there for my just one son at the time and my wife and knowing that, you know, if I left the army, I can see the guys that would take my place. They're right here right now waiting to take my job. But if I don't come home, I don't know who that guy is for my wife or my son. Right. Yeah. Certainly just, you know, anybody who's getting married with kids obviously knows that feeling. Let me ask you more about Tacker Gar because, you know, that's obviously comes back to you, right? I mean, that's why you're dealing with PTSD. What events come back to you the most or came back to you the most that you had to play over in your head? Well, obviously, there's some things that you feel like you need to process and some things you try to make sense of. There's definitely some survivor's guilt and also the weight of being a leader responsible for the loss of life on our own end and feeling like you could have done something differently to save lives. Um so just that weight and responsibility of being one of the guys that made it because Mark Anderson on my right was shot and killed when I was touching him. The man across from me on my left, Phil Svitak, was shot and killed when I was could have reached out and grabbed him. Two guys left and right killed in the first five seconds. And I'm still breathing now, today, talking to you. So the existential matters, I think, I dealt with as much as kind of the, uh, you know, a specific image or whatever. Obviously, it's very graphic um, dealing with casualties on the battlefield. Our weapons and the enemy's weapons are very destructive and um, meant to hurt and kill. Um, so you deal with that. I, there's images of that. Um, I, I don't try to think about. I don't want to think about. I don't obsess over it. But they intrude. And, and then just the conditioning of being in a combat environment and then in a more prolonged state, being in a high threat environment, both in Kosovo and in Iraq, uh, that puts you kind of in a uh, in an, an acute stress mentality um, where you're hypervigilant and 
nervous in crowds and especially driving down the road, nervous as piles of trash and, and the kinds of things. Cause the fight in Iraq was just another layer altogether and much more complex from a terrain perspective. And the human component threat was very real in every person in Afghanistan. For me, it was a much more conventional fight where the threat was known It was fairly isolated combat, still very real and very lethal. But in Iraq, it's much more psychological. So I carried that with me as well. So those two things together, I think, just led to a, uh, a an adjustment period for me and some things that, you know, I probably will always carry. Um, still have dreams. Still think about those things every day. Um, but I'm doing my best to try to um, to use those things for helping other people and use those things for growing as an individual and parenting and and uh, still trying to serve the military however I can. Do you still keep in touch with the guys from Takagar? Uh, some of them quite frequently, some of them not much. Um, we, I think, all feel a desire to be together, um, but everyone's life takes you a different direction. We've had a few reunion-type events, and I think uh, we're at 15 years this year. I'm pretty sure when we get to 20, we're going to have something pretty big. Um, the, uh, the experience is not something that anyone could ever take away from us and the bonds that we share and the unconditional love that we have for each other. Um, at least my perspective on it is that nothing could ever change that. And so it doesn't really matter how much time has passed. It doesn't really matter if we're involved in each other's lives. I think if we were ever together again, we would feel the same emotion. Um, and I'm thankful to have served with such great men. Um, I was fortunate to be in uniform, um, fortunate to be able to serve with the units I did in all the places I served. And, uh, and whenever I see someone or hear from someone that was in one of those units, whether I knew them or not, especially if I knew them, I just feel a lot of, a lot of joy and a lot of love. And so I do look forward to when we can get everyone together. Um, course there's some pain involved in that um but i think that processing that is a good thing was there a kind of uh, seminal moment for you that made you realize that you had to start talking about all this and get it all out i mean was it affecting your wife or your home life or did something trigger all this and said hey i've got to you know really kind of start to take some some steps in a certain direction well when i with every deployment I had, the kinds of things that I thought were um, pretty serious, loss of life, whether it's civilian or otherwise, and the kinds of things that were closest to me and hurt the most were the kinds of things I did not want to share. And so I didn't want to talk to my wife about it. I didn't want to talk to my folks about it. I didn't really want to talk about it. I just wanted to talk about the tactical things of what happened and you know, what can we learn from it and very professional approach. And so I shielded a part of who I was away. Um, and then right after I left the military, I felt a lot of guilt that I had, that I had quit, that I had abandoned um, in a time of war, a time of need. And, you know, the attitude I had coming out of Afghanistan was my experiences should be poured back into the profession. My experience, my, my feeling coming out of the army completely was that I had turned my back on that feeling. I turned my back on that kind of obligation that, you know, you should have stayed. 
you should still be over there. And in fact, I had a, my unit that I was in in the 101st Airborne Division was deployed uh, not long after I left the Army, and I would have been in command of that unit. And so uh, there's a lot of guilt, feeling like uh, whether I stayed in the Army, I would have been selfish because it's what I wanted to do professionally, selfish with respect to my family. But if I had, but when I left the army, I felt selfish with respect to the profession and my peers and my classmates and all those guys because they were still fighting the war that I was now benefiting from as a, as a citizen, um, benefiting from the safety they were providing and the, la- the lack of a threat at home. Um, so I hated myself. I contemplated suicide. I um, was partaking in some self-destructive behaviors um and my wife saw the signs she knew there was a problem and she stepped in and intervened called my folks got some guys from the army involved chaplain friend of mine that was in afghanistan with me and and they got me to the va and and called in the local church and there was a lot of help and you know, a guy who had essentially led a rescue mission in Afghanistan was the guy needing to be rescued, and, and my wife led that. So, you know, when I look around and I see the effects of war on so many across our military, uh, the guys that are left alone and they're isolated or, or their family falls apart, they don't have anything keeping them going. I am beyond fortunate. It's a miracle that my wife is... The person that she is and that she she basically saved me saved us and our family so you know i owe that to her and all the people that were willing to step up and make a difference nate i, I don't know how to thank you I, I don't know you know words seem trite and they don't seem to uh you know answer the mail uh, not only for your experiences and what you went through as a leader um, but also for sharing your story. I mean, it, it, the courage still to me to this day for people like you to be willing to talk is, is something I don't ever underscore. And, and I'm grateful that I have people like you who are willing to take part in this podcast because I, I think it makes it what it is. But I'm also grateful for you know what you've done, what you've went through, and who you are, and, and the fact that we've gotten to share some time together. But Again, uh, I think thank you falls short, but I'm not sure what else <laughs> would suffice at this point. But I know as somebody who's walked a similar turf to you have throughout your career um, that, you know, we'll always be standing side by side, brother. Yeah, I appreciate that, Mark. And uh, thank you for your service and thank you for what you're doing here to, to tell the stories. Nate Self, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground, brother. Yes, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.